Women's health is not just about periods and reproduction. It's about health in general for half the human population. We're talking with Dr. Laura Bryden and Tate from Cuddle Dom about all that stuff to understand our bodies better. You're listening to TNA Talk Sex. I'm T. Welcome to episode 141. Wow. I know. There's so much to talk about because sex isn't ever just about sex. It's about uh, all of it, which is why we're talking with Dr. Laura today. Um, I think we're just going to call you Laura, right, on the show? Yes, please. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so Laura wrote a book called Period Repair Manual, and she also has a really active blog on at her site, larabryden.com. So Laura is spelled L-A-R-A. And uh, and also the Healthy Hormone blog, right? Is that that's sort of all on that site. And Tate is guest hosting with us to chime in with their experience with endometriosis. Uh, Tate came on our show recently to talk about their touch therapy practice uh, at cuddledom.com. So that's D-O-M-M-E. Awesome. I was in love with your period repair manual um, book that you wrote, Laura. And, uh, and Tate, you've had some health issues down there as well that you've dealt with. And, and so we're just going to talk about them uh, and get a better understanding because yeah, I'm excited for this. I'm I have a lot of questions for Lara about I actually was diagnosed with endometriosis back in 2013. And so I've been on that road roller coaster for a little while. And I'm, yeah, I'm excited that you seem to be so knowledgeable. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about endometriosis. It's a important topic for yeah. humanity. <laughs> right. I'm finding more and more women that I know have it. And, um, and, and then I sort of researched it and found that I think it said one in 10 women are suffering from it in America. Is this, does that? Yeah. And, and most don't know it. I'd say many don't realize they suffer. The, the average time to diagnosis is 10 years. Yeah, I didn't know I had it until I got a laparoscopic camera exploratory surgery because I was in the hospital thinking I had appendicitis, but then they saw the endometriosis. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I think maybe we'll use this as a starting point. Yeah. I, uh, I know jumping, jumping right in. I mean, so, I yeah. basically, I mean, I think growing up, like I haven't, I basically didn't know anything about my period, right? It's like, you just get it. And, uh, and mom was like, here's how you use a pad. I was so surprised on the first day of my first period. <laughs> Wait, did anyone ever tell you about it before you got it? I read, my mom handed me a couple of books about like develop, de development, quote unquote, and puberty. And uh, we didn't talk too much about it. But when, on the first day of my first period, I didn't know what was happening. Like nobody told me what that experience was going to be like or what it could possibly be like. What was your experience like? Um, like feeling kind of sick. And then having rust-colored liquid in your underwear yeah. and not knowing where it came from. How old were you when you got it? 13. Yeah, I was I was on the later side. Most of my friends had already gotten it, but I also didn't know what it was. And I, I grew up with my dad. And so I had like severe pain and we thought it was like a kidney stone because it was oh. in my lower back and, um, and went to the doctor. And then the pain went away, of course, once the doctor finally saw me. And then when I got home, I finally had this rust colored, uh, <laughs> you know, deposit. And then I came downstairs and was like, Dad, I'm bleeding. Uh, I don't know. So but then from there, it's like, yeah, you don't really know what's going on. And you just sort of riding this roller coaster where for many years I was fine. But then I stopped being an athlete and I thought maybe that had a change in it. But at one point in college, I had extremely painful periods. And um, I sort of thought it must be 
dietary. Um, Do so, you have endometriosis? Well, I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Where are you there? <laughs> yeah, I'm listening. I'm listening. One thing I want to chime in and say, for the record, in my on my with my take on things, period pain is not normal. Period should not be painful. I know that's the common experience in our society. I think it is a lot to do with our inflammatory diet. But what I find is that most, for most women, women who don't have endometriosis, period pain responds very quickly to diet changes and natural treatment and goes away. And then for those women for whom that doesn't happen, that's a sign that something else is going on. And just to be clear, endometriosis is not just bad period pain. It's not like it's just a spectrum of those, a little bit of period pain and then there's, you know, bad and then there's endometriosis. Endometriosis is a disease. Yeah, it's a separate thing. It's an inflammatory disease that causes excruciating pain as one of its symptoms, Mm -hmm. but it's quite different than, yeah, your average run-of-the-mill period pain. I have a blog post called When Period Pain Isn't Normal, and I talk about some of the differences there. Yeah, I mean, I found more and more also that my period will be more severe based on stress during that month. Yep. Yes. Depending what I'm eating and how I've been taking care of myself. I mean, it ends up being sort of a, a like a barometer to like fix things. Hey, hey T, and that's straight out of my book. So I call it, um, I call the period our monthly report card. It's exactly yeah. what, what you just said. It's a barometer of where we're at with our diet and, and stress levels, and not just that month, but it's um, help, quite helpful to understand that our period can be a barometer, an expression of what's been happening for the full three months leading up to period, the period, because that's how long it takes the, the eggs and our ovaries to develop. It takes them about three months, and that's what leads to something called ovulation, which is not just to make a baby. It's actually to have a healthy period. And so the quality of all that, depending on how, how all of that's happened, that will then, you know, give you a period that's on time, that's not too heavy, that doesn't have any PMS or pain or that, that's my, I'm just trying to set the bar quite high for periods. They should just come approximately every month and be fairly easy. Wow. But isn't there like, I guess I always assume there'd just be like some discomfort from cramping. Like my, I was like, in my mind, I thought, okay, it cramps to expel the stuff inside of you. The uterus contracts, but that shouldn't be painful. Um, that all this said, I mean, pain is pretty common. So I don't want to make women feel, <laughs> you know, ab- abnormal when they're, you know, just having kind of run-of-the-mill period pain. But in, I just had this very interesting conversation with a colleague, and she's an acupuncturist, and she was talking about her instructors, you know, the traditional Chinese medicine, and they made this comment, and I heard the same thing from some of my instructors, that it's like, oh, you, you know, North American women are so funny. You think periods are supposed to be painful. They're, they're not. They are in our society, in our experience, but I, w- I would argue that's not normal. Oh, my God. This right? is revelational for me. <laughs> I, well, what's funny for me is it totally doesn't make me insecure in the sense of what you were saying, like no one should feel deficient or like something's wrong you know well well I guess we're saying I mean in a way but okay nothing's wrong with you but something is wrong (laughs) so so (laughs) it immediately makes me want to I think of it more as a challenge like okay how do I you know successfully mitigate that pain and for me I thought okay if I can regulate that month but to hear you even say three months in advance I'm going oh my god okay yeah. Like, yeah. you know, there's so much information there. And, and your book is so valuable, because it really just lays it all out there in a way that 
you know, I feel like I want I wanted that book when I was 12, like mandatory reading in schools or something. Mm-hmm. My 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 purpose, my mission statement with the book was to make women feel smart, feel smart enough to understand their own bodies, because we've had this. It's a I'd say it's a misogynistic thing in our society. I'll use that word. This idea that women's health is oh so mysterious and so weird. You know, we don't know really what's going on. You even get this attitude from doctors sometimes. It's like, oh, it's too complicated it's to just understand. Like problems. It's too complicated. Yeah, it's just it's just this big kind of you know swirling mystery. It's not like that at all. There's a logic to our bodies. There's a it, and women themselves can understand their bodies. It's not that complicated. It's not rocket science. And I, I, I think that's come across because I've had some feedback from readers who said they were happy to be able to feel like they could understand it for the first time. What a beautiful gift. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> I, uh, something that came up for me, I was having a conversation the other day about uh, basically our, our vaginal scent down there, right? And, um, and we yep. all have a scent. Is there, but I'm like, okay, well, if it is this, you know, membrane that is that accesses our bodies and we absorb things very easily there, all this. I mean, is that not also kind of a barometer for our health? Yeah, it's um, that scent would largely be um, reflective of the what's called the microbiome or the ecosystem, the kind of bacterial ecosystem that's living there. The same is not that different from we have a bacteria ecosystem in our gut and on our skin. And, you know, the vagina has its own. And that's affected by lots of things so it's affected by hormones yes it's also affected by just what our you know our immune function what the the rest of the bacteria in our body are doing what we've eaten so yeah it can be a yeah it'd be interesting maybe one day the scientists will have a way to kind of in fact they will I'm not, this isn't speculation they're going to start looking more and more at the vaginal microbiome and what that can tell us about general health and about period health and even about things like endometriosis i think there's some you know, let's talk about these um, diagnostic tampons that we can use that we oh. you know, put in and sort of measure. And which is when you think about it, we, we so test cool. every other vaginal, every other fluid, right? We test saliva, we test blood, we test urine, we test stool, you know, we te- but we test semen. Why has nobody been testing menstrual fluid or, um, yeah, cervical fluid for? information about the body yeah i kind of want that now (laughs) that was the conversation where i'm going yeah i don't know why the scent is changing or not changing or you know and how do i rectify that yeah uh what's um okay so when i read your book it's like there is so much to take in right and um and for me i you know i'm reading there's these areas at the end of the book that talk about different uh natural therapies like different vitamin supplements you can take that kind of thing or hormonal supplements you know and and part of me goes okay you know I want to I want to start doing those but I don't necessarily need them right I mean do I need to be tested or is there sort of like some of them like turmeric and zinc something that I and magnesium something that I could be taking regularly just because you know I have a period yeah that's a good question do you need supplements the short answer would be no yeah, and I'd like to, yeah, in future editions of the book, I guess I'd like to make that perhaps a bit more clear. It's not about the supplements per se. In fact, a lot of it, we just talked about the period being a monthly report card. So if with the right diet and stress level, if you just happen to be you know, quite a healthy person on all fronts and, and your period's okay, then I would argue, no, you don't, no one needs a supplement to maintain that. It's only if there are, if you've already done the thing with a healthy diet and there's still problems, then that's where the supplements can come in as a tool to help you. And for most of them, they don't have to be long-term. 
for some of them can be used longer term. I'll give an example. I, I do find that magnesium is incredibly helpful for treating and preventing premenstrual syndrome. And some of the research su- suggests that PMS itself may be a symptom of magnesium deficiency, and magnesium deficiency is very common in our current society. So that might be something where I feel quite confident to say, yeah, most people out there would benefit from it. Great news. Yeah. And sorry, was that you said premenstrual syndrome? Like, what is that? Yeah. PMS. PMS. Oh, oh PMS. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got yeah. it. Like, pre- and again, that's PMS is not normal. So this sort of irritability and maybe headaches or breast tenderness, whatever it is before a period, we don't have to suffer that. We should be able to have a, you know, a period that arrives with no symptoms. Still blowing my mind on that one. What is <laughs> Tate? Do you have intense periods? Oh yeah, always have because of the endometriosis. So yeah, that's see, endometriosis know, is, yeah. is a different category. It's and the expectations around that are a bit different. Of but course. still, I like to think that most people with endometriosis can at least reach the point where they have far less pain or maybe no pain. You know, it's mm-hmm. um, interesting. It's just different. Than that. Yeah. Well, I suppose I don't know if I have it. I know that at one point I had like one a small cyst on one of my ovaries. Oh. Uh, yeah, well, it happened, there was pain during sex. And then at least this is the doctor's diagnosis was that I had that. And then I and then he said, well, get on birth control. And I was like, really? Is that the only solution? And then it led me, you know, I'm Googling, basically couldn't find anything about cysts online for women on their ovaries. And I just thought, you know, his response was like, it's normal. And I was like, how could that be normal? Like, I, it could be common, but it doesn't sound normal. And it seems like there should be a way to deal with it that's better than just taking a pill yeah well I did I did the pill for like a month maybe one like for two months and then I didn't like the way it affected my body so I've and that was the only time I've ever anyway go ahead (laughs) yeah those sort of functional ovarian cysts which again are quite different from something like endometriosis they are quite common and they but what's interesting I just two days ago tweeted something from the what's called the Cochrane Review, Review, which is the main sort of evidence-based medicine group in the world. And they very clearly state that hormonal birth control is not a treatment for ovarian cysts. So just for any of your listeners out there, that's actually not a very good solution. They're usually um, with those kind of functional cysts that come and go, they most of the time they just go on their own and don't require treatment. If they become recurring, then that's sort of a, a different kind of problem in that and I've in my book I talk about nutritional ways to prevent that and for your listeners because I know there's gonna be some people listening who might be a bit confused this what we're saying now about these ovarian cysts that's very different from a hormonal condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome which is a confusion that gets made a lot that um I know someone who suffers from that yeah I do too it's called yeah it's called PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it's because it has the word cyst and ovary in the name and you think it's about the ovarian cyst, but it's not, it's actually doesn't even have real cysts. It has, it's a hormonal condition. Mm. So that might be a topic for another podcast in the future, but (laughs) just to clarify that. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm, it's your opinion, but do you, I mean, do you feel like the, there are environmental stressors that are creating a lot of these imbalances for us? I mean, yeah, it's what Tate, I think it was what Tate said earlier about, you know, not wanting, it's not women who are abnormal. (laughs) It's our environment between the hormone disrupting environmental toxins and our, some aspects of our diet, which are quite problematic and damage to our, uh, what's called microbiome or the good bacteria in our body, all of, and a combination of all of those things creates 
a setting where it's more difficult for the body to go through this kind of normal monthly cycle and that results in symptoms. So yes, I do think period problems are, I would think, more common now because of some of those those issues. Hmm. Can I ask you about, so like diet wise, like I think I eat a largely healthy diet, but then there's certain qualifiers that come up in your book like, um, okay, dairy is a trigger for you know, inflammation, it can be right, it has the A1 casein in it. And then yeah, but I'm like, okay, well, I only have a little bit of dairy, like, is there a, you know, a range that that's okay? Um, And and then are there certain, you know, is there a diet we can be eating that is just built around like the health of our vaginas as women that works in its entirety? Does that make sense? Like, okay, I'm vegetarian, but then I'm not getting enough meat. And then I'm not getting so then I'm not getting zinc. Yeah, I would say I would say there is not one diet that works for everybody's menstrual health. It it sort of needs to be selected more on what what problems a woman is tending to. So of course we all have different genetics and so some people, for example, in the case of endometriosis, some people will just never get that condition. Some people are genetically in contrast, some people are genetically vulnerable to that condition, for example. And um in terms of which foods are problematic, look, I, I'd say some people can eat dairy and not have a problem. So they are the lucky ones. I'd say the the, the two, three big foods, I guess I'd say they're the most inflammatory foods in our diet, which are um, dairy, gluten, sugar, and arguably vegetable oil. The sugar and vegetable oil are potentially inflammatory for everyone. The gluten and dairy, it really depends on the individual. So some people are lucky enough to not suffer inflammation from those foods, inflammation, and so they can have them and then that's good. For some people, if the foods are generating inflammation, then that's going to hit the hormonal system, hit, you know, impair ovarian function. And I do find that cow dairy in particular can be quite a problem for some people for periods causing heavier periods, worse PMS period pain. And I do wonder when I heard my friend or colleague, you know, talking about the old, the Chinese medicine instructors saying, you know, women in China don't get, don't have problematic periods. did. The first thing that popped into my mind was, well, yeah, they weren't having dairy. You know, they were not having dairy. Well, they do now oh, in China, I yeah. think. But, you know, dairy was not part of their diet. I, I don't know. I don't think no one's looked at this in terms of research. I don't know why dairy is such a problem for periods. I don't know all the mechanisms, but I well, see that clinically that, yeah. Uh, speculatively, I've read about the fact that some people can digest dairy because their ancestors evolved alongside having cows as, you know, livestock. And so those people might have developed the enzyme to digest it, whereas others, such as me, I'm from Native American heritage, did not. <laughs> and so absolutely. And so I think not just period health, but like entire body health, some people can digest it and make energy out of it. And some people it hurts. It's true. That's to do with a lot to do with the specific part of the lactose in dairy, whether we can digest that or not. I think it's about one in four people in general cannot digest it. And yeah, in certain groups of depending who your ancestors were, that'd be a lot higher than most, you know, the would be the majority that can't digest lactose. But there's some of the other, it's not just the lactose, so the protein in dairy can be inflammatory as well. Mm. And again, there is, I'm sure there is a genetic susceptibility to that. So So yeah, if you had you know, 10,000 years of ancestors, well, 2,000 years of ancestors, you know, eating cow dairy products, then maybe you're better adapted. 
Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to take a mini break and we'll be right back. Yep. We're, we're talking with Dr. Lara Bryden. Uh, you can find her book, Period Repair Manual, on, uh, you can buy it online, iTunes, Kindle. Um, also, uh, where else, Lara? Is it also on Amazon? Yes. Yeah, Amazon and all the big online book Right, and you can stores. buy a hard copy there. We're talking with Tate from CuddleDom.com. That's D-O-M-M-E. And keep up with us on social media at TA Talk Sex on Instagram and YouTube and all that good stuff. We'll be right back. And we're back with TNA Talk Sex. I'm T. We're talking with Tate with from Cuddledom and Dr. Laura Bryden about our periods and how women don't have to be uncomfortable. What? <laughs> um, and uh, I guess I always like to add, like, even if there's men who are interested in it because of their people, women in their lives who are struggling with it, like there's I've learned a lot from men in my life who had tidbits of information Um in fact, for me, the stress, like stressors that I was putting on myself were creating, were exacerbating my period. And it was, and it was a man who brought up this idea of like the pain body and that I was carrying stress and emotional issues that were leading to it. And then I worked on that and it actually, I don't know, alleviate, alleviated a lot of my pain, to awesome. be honest. And it wasn't as much like diet. Cha- I mean, I, over the years, I think there've been diet changes that helped me, but then there was also like, oh, now I need to deal with some emotional stuff that's causing pain how do you address that laura about whether the role of stress in period symptoms like um yeah i think that i think there's definitely a factor for some women we we tend to run on just our adrenaline you know most of us if we're living a modern life and that that's an inflammatory state Mm -hmm. so it makes sense to me that dialing that back can make quite a difference for women's Periods, absolutely. Yeah. So something that uh, surprised me in your book was the idea of how estrogen needs to vacate our body, basically, and that it's yeah. going through our intestines, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I I was tell wondering if you more. could exactly talk a bit about that. <laughs> yeah. So there is a group of bad bacteria, um, gram-negative bacteria. This this goes back to the idea that we have an ecosystem inside of us. And I'm sure most, I think it's in the popular media now, this idea of our microbiome. Have you guys have heard of that Mm -hmm. before? Yeah. Gut flora. Yeah, gut flora and all the jobs. They do some, they do probably millions of jobs for us. I mean, half of them, like a third of them, we don't even, haven't even looked at. So they, one of the things that happens is if there's bad bacteria living there, they make an enzyme that, called beta-glucuronidase, which is a bit technical, but for any of your listeners, that actually interferes with the body's re- safe removal of estrogen. So the body has a plan. It it locks on a little something onto the estrogen to deactivate it, and then it puts it into the intestine and says, out you go. And if the wrong bacteria are there, they say, oh, no, we, we're, we're just going to remove that. We're going to you know, put estrogen back into the blood because we feel like it basically. And so if there's been any kind of problem with the intestinal bacteria, that's a common reason to get this, what's called estrogen recirculation. So then you don't, it's it's not just the estrogen you're making from your ovaries. You're also reabsorbing quite a lot from the gut Mm. and that can worsen symptoms of excess estrogen, which would be things like heavy periods, um, fibroids, which are, and, and also endometriosis, which is made worse by 
high levels of estrogen. This is what I've heard. Yes. Uh, I had no idea that my body was recycling it, though. How do we prevent this from happening? You maintain a healthy intestinal bacteria. Mm -hmm. So you can go down that path of looking at what, you know, the bacteria love to eat vegetables, for example. <laughs> they, um, you know, they, they like to usually have some probiotics put in. Um, it's okay. It's okay. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's lots of different strategies, um, nutritional and dietary strategies to maintaining a healthy gut bacteria. And the other one is to, as much as possible, avoid antibiotics. So I know that's not always possible. I'm the first mm -hmm. to acknowledge that antibiotics can be very important life-saving treatment, but they've also been overprescribed. And so what I say to my patients is, you know, it's part of your long-term hormonal strategy, period health strategy to find health, stay healthy or find other ways to deal with chest infections or, you know, virus, sinus infections, for example, and then therefore avoid antibiotics. Because quite often I'll see someone, they'll say, oh, I've suddenly had a lot worse PMS than before. And we'll say, oh, are you more stressed? Is it diet? And then I might say, oh, did you have antibiotics in the last few months? Mm -hmm. And it might be, oh, yeah, I had them a couple months ago. And in my interpretation, that's the PMS is sort of a downstream effect of that disruption mm -hmm. to the intestinal bacteria. Is, I've been having this experience. Yeah. What's that? That the yeah, I took antibiotics in February, and then this last month I had two periods, two weeks apart, each a week long. Yeah. Wow. Do you, uh, Laura? It, you know, something like UTIs. I always initially thought I had to take antibiotics to deal with it, and then only recently did I do a home remedy, if you will, of natural products to cleanse myself and it went away um no one really talks about that is it you know can we treat our uti without antibiotics yeah what i tend to say with my own patients is keep an eye on it don't don't let it progress because as you probably know it can progress to a kidney infection which can be quite serious so uh, yeah sometimes my patients will do a you know, probiotic or like an alkalizing you know just drink lots of water and um, sort of change the pH of their urine and maybe take some herbal medicine and see if they can in a few days, you know, two or three days clear it. And if not, then take the antibiotics. So I think there's a little bit of wiggle room there, but you need to be careful. Sure. I, I also found sitting in a tub of vinegar <laughs> helped okay. a lot. <laughs> Just yeah. putting that out there. Um, uh, yeah, I was wondering. Um, so for me, I actually, oh, actually, I was curious about uh, like, our cycle over the years, like as they pass, mm -hmm. are there certain common trends for like, okay, early, early period, I get it in my teens, and then into the 20s, the 30s, right? And then of course, menopause eventually. Yeah, so the trend is cycles. So, so I mean, for for young girls, say 13, 14, 15, they're at risk for heavier periods at that time, just because their body's not yet used to estrogen. And so estrogen is quite stimulating for them. And also they may not be ovulating every cycle, so they don't get the benefit of a hormone called progesterone, which makes periods lighter. So that's something I, I treat a lot is just these young girls that are about to go on the pill because they're, you know, bleeding through their <laughs> clothes and it's not very fun for them. Yeah, that so that they respond quite well to natural treatment. And then I guess the trend after that, you know, it should be 20s, 30s should be pretty regular, pretty fine. In the 10 years or so leading up to menopause, typically 
the cycles become shorter because there'll be a shorter time leading up to ovulation, basically because the hormones that stimulate ovulation are just are getting higher. And so the body's kind of getting more excited in a way and ovulating sooner. And so that leads to periods more close, closer together. And also typically that's another danger time for heavy periods is in our forties. Not everyone gets that. Some people just get lighter periods, but some women can get very heavy periods in their forties. And this is something called flooding, which is a term that hopefully you'll never need to know yourself personally, (laughs) because it's, um, not very fun. And I, you know, this, this group of women in their late forties flooding and again, bleeding through their clothes, it's an, I'm, it's, I'm giving it a lot of thought these days because it's, it's, um, it's not talked about very much. And I do get the sense from some women, at least is sort of this shame or secrecy around it. And part of it's because they're also old, getting older, right? Like so menopause itself has a stigma and a shame around it. So then you've got these you know, body misbehaving, this crazy bleeding that you don't even want to talk about. The doctor, that's the point when the doctor says, I'll just, you know, 20 years ago, they say, I'll just take your uterus out. That's what they did. Now it's, you know, you have no choice but to take this hormonal IUD or hormonal birth control. And they just do it because they are just genuinely quite frightened and don't know what else to do. (laughs) Yeah, they don't seem to know really anything about endometriosis from my experience of multiple doctors trying to treat me. Oh, well, and yeah, so some, I mean, that kind of flooding can happen in older women, even without endometriosis, but yeah, but but flooding with endometriosis. Yeah, it's another. I was just piggybacking on your comments about how doctors are very quick to give hormones because they don't know what the problem is and that could possibly abate the issue. Let's, I might say a word now about endometriosis, if that's okay, because I have quite a specific, so it's currently, it's treated essentially as a hormonal condition so they the mainstream treatment is surgery which i of which i approve you know i I think surgery can be quite helpful so i'm not against that but surgery to remove these abnormal lesions um and then that are causing the pain and then followed by hormonal suppression so and that's working on the idea that we know that estrogen stimulates the disease and so that's why the disease will kind of flare up and down through the cycle and get potentially get worse and worse each month. So they're like, okay, their plan is, okay, let's just turn off estrogen and that'll, that's what we can do. That's how we're going to fix the problem. But I see it from quite a different perspective. I see it not as a hormonal condition, but as an inflammatory disease, a serious inflammatory disease, possibly an autoimmune disease that is affected by estrogen. So in that sense, in my thinking, it, and from my strategy with my own patients, is to treat the inflammation, like treat the inflammatory disease. And then the kind of normal ups and downs of estrogen are not going to drive it, if that makes sense. Getting to more at the root of the problem. That's been my experience pretty spot on, actually. Yeah. So I'm, I feel good to know that you've had a, you have a similar outlook. Yeah. Yeah. And um, because, oh, go ahead. I was just saying because women need their hormones. It's this whole, this modern approach of just shutting down hormones with hormonal birth control. It sounds makes scary. me sad. It makes me sad because women, we benefit from estrogen and we benefit from the other hormone, progesterone, which we can only make if we ovulate, which we can only make if we don't take hormonal birth control. So by using hormonal birth control to fix everything, we're robbing women of hormones that we need it's the analogy would be like if you said for every 
you know, for men, we're just going to turn off your testosterone because you really don't need that unless you're going to be a baby. Or like and, it's causing too many problems. Just turn it off. Yeah. And see how you feel. And it's like, well, yeah, you're going to feel a bit depressed or gain some weight. But, you know, whatever. that's better than... Well, and blood, yeah. clot, blood clots too, right? Isn't that like some kind of a it's minor a risk, issue? Especially if you're a smoker. Mm. Oh. It comes from the synthetic steroid drug that they use. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a question? Sure. How is it that we benefit from estrogen and progesterone? Like what, yeah. what, what good things are we getting? I'm a cheerleader for these hormones. Well, both, first of all, I'm just going to talk about their effect on mood because this is quite timely because in October last year, there was a big Danish study that linked the use of hormonal birth control to depression, ang- to depression and an anxiety. And of course, to most, many of us, that wasn't a surprise because we can see that. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and both estrogen and progesterone, our own progesterone, which is very different from the steroid drugs in hormonal birth control. There's no progesterone in any type of hormonal birth control. But real progesterone has a, a strong benefit on the brain. It acts like a it's kind of like a Valium, it's like an axon, the neurotransmitter GABA. So it has a very calming effect, very, you know, um, promotes healthy stress response. It, it affects the, what's called the adrenal axis. The communication between the pituitary and the adrenal gland is affected by progesterone, is regulated by progesterone. And a lot of parts of the brain are regulated by progesterone, which is probably why Recently, another study came out where they found that women on hormonal birth control have altered brain structure compared to women who cycle naturally. And they don't know, you know, they didn't know exactly why, but I would speculate that it's probably that women, the lack of progesterone that has, you know, changes brain. Wow. Wow. (laughs) On a side note, I have this Japanese brown rice that I eat that claims to have GABA in it. Can it have GABA in it? (laughs) Because isn't it It like... a GABA analog, I guess. Or you wouldn't have, you wouldn't get much of that through to your brain, though. I don't think. Okay. Um, you can take, yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah, probably a nice food. So yeah, I thought I thought that does sound healthy and helpful. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, if all these parts of our brain are affected by this hormone, do male-bodied people also have this hormone, or are they operating on a different system? Oh, that's a very good question. So men make progesterone. So the bulk of our progesterone comes from our ovaries and our adrenal glands but our nervous our nervous system itself makes progesterone and i think some other some parts of the brain make progesterone so men have they're well they have they do have some progesterone but they are on a different system as well i mean obviously testosterone plays a strong role yeah it's, for them it's a hell yeah. of a drug but you're right we kind of only hear about testosterone like in my brain i'm like yeah men have testosterone that's all but it there has to no. be a much more innate system mm-hmm they have estrogen, they have estrogen as well. In fact, I learned something a couple of years ago, which I thought was quite interesting. That so estrogen has a huge role in libido, in both men and women. And for men, like there are some men who just genetically, or they have a you know mutation or something where they don't make they make too little estrogen. They have an estrogen deficiency, and they're one of the symptoms of that is low libido. Mm-hmm. So. It's just fascinating mm. to me that the role of, you know, we tend to think of estrogen as a bad thing, but it's not. It's an amazing, amazing hormone for both men and for both well, women and then men in small amounts. And I then you celebrating then, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. How do I celebrate? I just, I'm a cheerleader for it. I just threw my writing and. And that was. Just, 
Yeah. Estrogen and progesterone. Is there another, another, no, those were the two that you guys mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are the two main ones that I, yeah. That you love. Women's hormones. Um, are we, yeah. 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 Also in the women's monthly cycle, it does ebb and flow, right? So doesn't that inherently affect our moods? Absolutely. It does actually. And our brain changes shape size through the month. That's crazy. So, yeah, so we are now, like, what? What does that mean? My brain shape. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Laura. I, I cut you off. No, no, I mean, so we do. I mean, I said that, you know, we should, our period should just arrive with no symptoms, but it, it's, we still may have some, um, we may notice when we feel different in ourselves, have a different libido, a different kind of mindset at different times in our cycle. And there are a lot of women who kind of work with that and celebrate that. I love it. Yeah, I feel like I want to map out my calendar, like the minute I see, I guess what, like the milky discharge indicating I'm ovulating, like how do I, how do I stay aware of what's happening hormonally for me? Yeah, so you can, in my book, I talk about the physical signs of ovulation. So that, yeah, there's the cervical fluid, the change in discharge, and it's quite dramatic, like, and women who've been on hormonal birth control have, won't have seen it. So it's often something that... I'm just mentioning this because sometimes it's not, it's a common story actually for women to think they've got something wrong, like there's an infection or something because suddenly they're seeing all this slippery, egg white looking fluid, (laughs) vaginal fluid that they hadn't seen before. But that's normal. That happens leading up to ovulation. Yeah. I mean, I normally experience it tied to me being really horny. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I mean, is that accurate? Libido libido goes up around that time as well. That's... um, that's a common experience. Okay, yeah. just confirming. But, yeah. But, I mean, you can be horny at other times in the cycle and, and, and you know, not see the – the fertile mucus usually only happens kind of in those three to four days before ovulation. Oh, sure. No, I'm always – I am always horny. But <laughs> <laughs> but I feel that there is sort of like an increase where, where it starts sort of being in your brain like – Unbearable. Yeah, exactly. Like, now I must act on it. <laughs> Do you, I I find it interesting too, how much women talk about like there being less pain or like how sex can help with cramping during your period. I feel like I usually don't want to do that in, in my cycle. Is there, I mean, do you, I don't know. I mean, I I would say when you're bleeding, usually your, your, that hormone or estrogen is plummeting, right? So it's dropping. Estrogen's quite low then. Um, but that's when that's an that's some people, women do report higher libido then because I think because then that's when they get a bit more of their their testosterone coming through. So we have male hormones as well, and normally they're counterbalanced by estrogen but and progesterone. But I think they get to come through a bit more around the time of our period. So that might be why some women have a higher libido then. Yeah, in your book you do spend like the opening of the book talks a lot about birth control pills and that kind of thing and women coming off of it and I feel like so much of our culture is now uh, at very young ages women are getting on birth control pills before they they fully understand maybe their cycle and what's happening I mean do you have some thoughts on that (laughs) do you have like an hour to talk about how I feel about that (laughs) every time I try to if I stand up in front of a group and try to give a presentation about this and about teenagers taking the pill I almost always start crying because if you think about it, okay, so we just talked about how beneficial estrogen and progesterone are for brain, for also for libido, for muscle health, for bones, 
for metabolism. And then you think about shutting that all down and essentially castrating them at the age of 14. And that's why I get upset. <laughs> we should we should not be doing that to teenage girls, put it that way. I mean, I just, I don't have the tiniest doubt in my mind that that is not okay to do to young women. I honestly think that it contributed to me having a predisposition to depression because I went on the pill at 14 and I was on it until like 18. Well, that's consistent with the current research. That pretty much lines up exactly. And so you think about this, like, I mean, a teenager, you're thinking, well, they could be depressed anyway. You know, so they they don't even really, until recently, it hasn't even really been acknowledged that it was probably caused by the pill. And so then the girl just goes on an antidepressant. And the two of them, the two drugs together, do a hell of a job to suppress libido, Mm. which I find, because I think libido is very important. I mean, we Mm. talked about it a bit today, and I think it's quite important for everybody, no matter what way or what way they're going to use it, or, you know, it's their their drive, you know, their drive for life as well as sex. And I, I, and how do you know what a normal libido is, is for a 14 year old? And how does she even know if she's been chemically castrated? Yeah. At that age? I mean, this might even, obviously it's sort of a larger topic, but for me immediately comes up, like, I feel like there's this normalizing of the idea of depression in our culture. And I also go, in my mind, being depressed isn't normal. It might be common, but if we're feeling that, then something's out of balance. If we're, like you're saying, if we have a sex drive, if we have a way of expressing ourselves, like all these things, you can just feel okay <laughs> instead of lethargic. Suppressed. Yeah. yeah, instead of suppressed, yeah. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. I, you know, I don't know how it is that I escaped being on the pill. I mean, all of my friends were. I think maybe I always joke that like my parents were so hands off that was like their best gift. <laughs> yeah. Was was that nothing was put upon me, so I was able to like cobble the pieces together on my own. Um, yeah. And I yeah, and so I ended up not ever grappling with that. But I I guess I I have a a, a side question that is specific to something I'm dealing with lately. Mm. Um, and and I couldn't find it in your book. Uh, but it's it's that I currently have sort of like a, if I'm having sex, there's almost like a the presence of like a little bit of blood, right? Like um like after I'll see it, right? Yeah. In the and I spotting. Is it? Well, it's like a bit of spotting, like oh spotting, spotting yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And I and that was never there before, right? So then I went, okay, does that mean something's wrong hormonally? Does that mean I'm not? kind of cleansing completely after my cycle ends and they're finding the like folds of it or is it fibroids that I meant that you know that I read about in your book I don't know do you have thoughts it would be fibroids I mean it can be from different things so if if you're around the time of ovulation you know it can just be it's it's possible just to like just from this um what's called the cervix which is the bottom of the uterus you know it, it can just sort of get a bit of spotting from having had some yeah con- you know um, more aggressive, uh, yeah, <laughs> sort of touching of the cervix. Um, that can also happen. I mean, you should maybe you could check with your doctor because it can also happen if there's just a bit of inflammation on the cervix as well, which can happen for different reasons. So the doctor could, I mean, she could just have a look, right, and see does the cervix look okay. Um, it can also be so it could be normal. It could just be around ovulation. It could be a bit of cervix inflammation. It could be. It can be endometriosis as well. And I mean just bringing us back to our topic of endometriosis, that's one of the 
one of the symptoms, the other main symptom with endometriosis and sex is pain with sex. Yes. So, um, in fact, it's quite a specific kind of pain, which this maybe doesn't apply to you at all. T, we're moving on from your question, but um, no, go ahead. It's deep stabbing pain. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. so I always talk to my patients. Like, some people might have pain with sex. It's like, well, is it just that kind of like a friction? Like, you're not lubricated enough of that kind of pain, or do you have maybe have a yeast infection? Is it that kind of pain? It's like, no, it's like it's like someone like a stabbing stab. me with yeah. a knife kind of yeah. pain. But like, all it's like the okay, way that. Up. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah. Well, can I ask yeah. you like something that comes up for me, you guys are, you know, I had this sort of what I would call like psychotic pain in college for like maybe three periods only, right? Like I left class and was like rocking on the ground, like hitting my head. Okay. Like lost my wow. mind pain, never felt anything like it before happened like that. Right. I think I did change dietary things. I started diversifying what I was eating. It seemed to get better. I think also maybe exercise. Um, but I never, I haven't had that again. Right. But then I'm going, okay, then there's this spotting moment. There was also that moment where they said, well, you do have a cyst. Maybe that's what caused the pain during sex. Right. That also only happened once. Is it, you know, when things happen kind of one-offs like that, can, could I still have endometriosis and, and have a very mild form of it? Or, I mean, where does it fall? That's a very good question. I mean, as you're talking about the three, the three months of just horrific pain that you've never really had before, before or since. Um, it, yes. I mean, I, I think it's part, some women do get sort of a flare up of endometriosis and then it quiets down. And maybe that's in your, you know, if you're lucky, that's sort of, cause it's a strange disease cause some women can have it quite badly and yet have very few symptoms from it. And, you know, it's, it's sort of manifests differently, but all that said, it could have just been, there was something else going on during those three months that gave you some bad period pain. And it, so no, nothing that you've said would make me say definitively, yes, you have it. You know, it's something to kind of keep, I guess, sure. in the back of your mind. Well, yeah. You, you mentioned um, like cervix inflammation, and I know obviously not diagnosing me, but in general, what are yeah. things that can cause that? I think it can just happen. I mean, it can be caused by infection as well. So, um, and it can be caused, it's affected by hormones. The cervix is quite sensitive to lots of different things. So, um but the doctor, I mean, that's quite a simple diagnosis for the doctor to make. She can just, like I said, probably have a look and. Sure, yeah, sure. I guess I just. There, maybe do this well. yep. Anatomically, I'm like, okay, the cervix, like all these, right, all these body the parts that you. Iceberg. Exactly. You're like, where, where do we start? Yeah. Like what, you know, yeah, yeah. What causes issues on those areas. Interest, like I didn't know that could even like we're talking about the vaginal area, bacteria. And I'm like, oh, well, my God, the cervix felt, also. You've, you've felt your cervix, though, have you? Have I felt it myself, like with my finger? Yeah. No. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I haven't, I've never, I felt it, you're right, during sex. I've been like, and that's the cervix. That's the cervix. I think that's a little at home homework everyone can do. Just, like, it's just crazy. Like, it's it's just, um, well, it's just, I think it's just, I don't know why I'm saying it. It's just sort of an awareness. Like, it's, it's surprisingly kind of hard. It's the bottom of your uterus. It kind of feels like the end of your nose. It's quite a, you know, it's sort of an interesting. So just to say, oh, that's where it is and... That won't help you decide whether that's what's causing the spotting, but it's good to know where it is. (laughs) (laughs) I think for sure, right? Like it is recommended that a woman explores herself to start. Well, often women, if you're using a menstrual cup or something, women will sort of become acquainted with where it is. Menstrual cup or um, other things that are becoming more popular again these days, diaphragm and... Are diaphragms back? 
Yeah. I think because they're an alternative to birth control. Like, yeah, like, what do you, Laura, you talk about all the different types out there. But I mean, my instinct is that and or pulling out method. But I like how you mentioned that, you know, maybe teenage girls shouldn't do that because maybe their partners haven't mastered their bodies yet. A lot of people use withdrawal. I always talk about it as a, well, I think we have to acknowledge that it's a method because it's does work for a lot of people. The if I ever, whenever I have a chance, and this is one of my chances to put the information out there that one of the reasons for the withdrawal to fail is if you have sex twice in a row because uh, sperm is left in the in the urethra. So the, just to be really clear, like the pre-cum normally before sex contains almost no sperm. It's essentially infertile. So that's not so much of a concern. But if you're having sex twice in a row, then the bit of cum leaking out does contain sperm. Thank you. Wow. (laughs) Wonderful clarification. Oh my God. Both of our faces while you were (laughs) explaining this. (laughs) The man has to, it's very simple. He just has to pee in between. (laughs) Well, men and women, you know, everyone should pee. Right. Yeah. Pee first. And then, yeah, because then that washes it away. Yeah. Great information. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'm well. Tate, do you have any questions kind of with endometriosis? I've asked a bunch of my questions. Uh, I think what I would want to ask is I, the way that I currently treat myself is that I have a prescription for an 800 milligram ibuprofen pill that I take when I start to get pain. Um, And then, other than that, I don't take any drugs for my endometriosis, but I did switch my diet completely. And also started putting on more muscle, which was really helpful, I think. Yeah. I'll offer one sort of simple thing that I I do for many of my endometriosis sufferers. So first of all, let me say the disease, we definitely desperately need more research into it. So I'm, you know, I'm the first to say that I don't, I certainly don't think that natural medicine has all the answers for it either. I'm hopeful that we're going to have some new information, new treatment ideas coming. But at the moment, one of the treatments that I give very often, because I like and I feel comfortable saying it today because it's quite safe for everyone, is a concentrated turmeric tablet. So turmeric has undergone clinical trials for endometriosis and it works because it reduces inflammation back to what I was saying before about treating the underlying reason for endometriosis. It regulates immune function, reduces inflammation, and it works best when you take it every day. So not just on when the pain does flare, but just constantly just to kind of downregulate that inflammatory process. I put it on all my food, but I'm more than happy to just eat a pill of it. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Where do we find pills like that? Are there grocery store, right? No. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I would try to get a better quality okay. one. I'll mention, I'm going to mention a brand name. I mean, Ooh, just as a starting please. point, but I, um, this is not by no means the only brand. I'm just giving this as an example. Like, I think it's worth finding a better quality supplement because a lot of supplements, especially in the US, unfortunately, from what I've heard, are actually don't contain what they say they do. And, you know, if you're just buying them over the counter, you really don't know what you're getting, unfortunately. But the one I'll quite often um, use even for my patients down here in Australia is um, a US brand called Thorn, and they make a turmeric called Mariva, which is a concentrated kind of extract. And so it's in a capsule form. You can just take that one or two 
per day. This is, I mean, speak with your, if you're, I don't want to be giving medical advice to everyone, but like obviously speak with your doctor. If that seems appropriate for you, then, you know, it should be safe to try. Do. For Thank most you. People. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm like, I'm probably this overactive person that wants to like get involved. So my instinct is like, I'm just going to take the turmeric. That's a bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> you, you might not need it though, T. This is the thing. Right. Like, we don't know. Yeah. You might, I don't think you can take something if you don't need it, but um Okay, just yeah. confirming, you know, for anyone else yeah. listening who's like me and, and like wants to like get on it. Overachiever. Yeah, exactly. Like chill, it's good. Like you're yeah. not having that problem. Okay. <laughs> um, I, Laura, I had a question just about your, some more about you and just kind of your research and, and where you'd like to see kind of women's health research go. And, and I guess just, well, yeah, I don't want to put too many questions on at once. Yeah. Um, we'll start there. Where would I? Where would I like to see women research into women's health go? Yeah, I would like to see women taken seriously <laughs> as human beings that you know have menstrual cycles and have hormones that are important <laughs> and yeah. yeah are listened to in science and in the doctor's office. So, having so. Uh, being that you've been practicing for many years now, are there commonalities or things that you more frequently see that they, I don't know, a trend that you could observe with women that, I don't know, is that? Yeah, well, I treat a lot of, so I treat a lot of endometriosis and I feel quite passionate about it. And, you know, I think perhaps it is growing in incident, like in frequency. Um, but also the other condition I treat a lot is what we talked about before, polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, which is creeping up to possibly affecting one in five wow. women. And it's, it's um it's a downstream effect of a, a metabolic problem in society right now called metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance that is affecting more and more people. So and it causes misery in women's lives because it one of its main symptoms is excess testosterone, which is really not pleasant. Like the women get facial hair, you know, their periods stop. So that's something I work with a lot too. Wow, wow. one in five. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. And okay, I, we're gonna we're gonna sign off shortly. But I just when <laughs> yeah. you said that, it makes me go okay. So just to touch on it, is there kind of we don't know the causes of it? Is there some causes that that indicate? I mean, what's creating? Yeah, it's my approach to PCOS is that it's um, it's not one thing. So currently, it's a diagnosis that's given to women that are probably in lots of different situations, but the most common one is, I will say, caused by an underlying problem with the blood sugar hormone insulin and insulin signaling in the body. And yeah, so that, so that, so treating it usually means getting to the, to that underlying issue. And, and the, doc, the doctors know this too. So the main kind of um, medical treatment for it is to give the diabetic drug called metformin to hopefully start to normalize insulin and then normalize what's happening with the periods. It's a good example of when the period is the report card, right? The monthly report card, because it's the cause is actually something totally different to do with insulin and sugar, but the effect is on periods. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I had one other question. You mentioned about how sometimes as a woman, you'll, you're still having your cycle, but you're not necessarily ovulating. Yeah. Um, and is that, that's, is that common? Like every now and then you just don't drop an egg or, yeah, apparently we only found this out. This is researcher 
um, I'm a big fan of. Her name is Gerilyn Pryor, a reproductive endocrinologist in Canada. She did a study where she discovered that in a population of healthy women, that we don't ovulate about a third of the time. We have still have a bleed, but we don't go through all the steps of kind of ovulation and making progesterone, and which is fascinating. Right. <laughs> you know, I suspect. Yeah, I think it's just ovulation is quite a fine-tuned event like it needs the body it needs everything to be right you know the right food supply the right you know not too much stress everything good you know it's kind of like are we all good yeah let's go let's ovulate let's try to make a baby which is ultimately what it's about even for women who don't particularly want a baby at that time having a healthy period is about that underlying mechanism to reproduce so interesting and it sounds like from what you're saying that our ability to regulate healthily is a cumulative effect yeah okay yeah cool yeah of our all our health kind of leading up to that point wow thank you and yeah for lots of young women i'll just close by saying that it's about eating it's about eating enough too i see a lot of women under eating and losing their periods to that and that I find quite sad too. <laughs> it's like women, you know, I have this whole thing of, you know, women get hungry. It's not, hunger is not a male thing. You know, women, it's normal for a woman to be hungry and to need a, not to need to eat a full meal. That's more than a salad and more than a smoothie and actually just eat. Well, and do you find there's basically like excluding fats or proteins? Those are probably more commonly missing in the diet. Yeah. And excluding carbs, uh, you know, some of the health circles, you know, sort of more, I guess uh, kind of modern uh, low carb movements can, can really do a number on women too, because they lose their periods. Oh boy. I've never been so excited about my period or estrogen. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, I love it. Like I now want to just really study it and like break down exactly what's happening in my cycle, but like in a good way, I'm going to share it yeah. on my show. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much right. for giving us, yeah. yeah, giving us your time and and breaking it all down. Um, the book is fascinating for all of that information. Uh, again, yeah. called the Period Repair Manual. Um, you can find also great information on Laura's blog at laurabryden.com. Uh, just to spell it for everyone, l a r a b r i d e n dot com. And uh, anything else I left out, Laura? No, that's that's it. For I'm on social media by the same handle. And thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you, you guys. so much. Yeah, and thank you, Tate, for sharing your own experiences. Uh, yeah, my, my pleasure. Yeah, which yeah, you can also find more about Tate at cuddledom.com. And, uh, and I, of course, am T of TNA Talk Sex. <laughs> so check us out on social media, tatalksex. Uh, not .com. But yes, that's our website, too. Ah, okay, this is episode 141, because sex isn't ever just about sex. Thank you. Bye. Bye.